open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. And also, if you still have a uh, reminder from last week, we'll also um, just be looking back at Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 29. Today we continue in our ser- uh, sermon series on the book Half Truths, looking at different phrases that we, we hear, we might use some of these, and um, not with any shame, but only with a sense of learning, to hold up some of the phrases that aren't directly in the Bible and hold them up against the light of Scripture. Um, and with sound doctrine, with good teaching, uh, to, to poke at what the half-truth is, and also to find the, the whole truth that sometimes is obscured by the half-truth. So last week we spent uh, time in Romans chapter 8 um, with this reminder that, that God is at work, even when we are not sure what to say or what to do. Even when we don't know what to think, God is at work. This is the Holy Spirit at work in us. And today we'll also pick up in Genesis chapter 50, uh, verses 15 through 21. This is the, the conclusion, really, of the book of Genesis, but the conclusion of the story of Joseph and his brothers um, and some of the things that they said. And in fact, even what is said is a lie from Joseph's brothers. This will all be part of how we wrap up this week of Everything Happens for a Reason, part two. Um, different, different of these sermons in this series will have sequels, and this is one of them. Um, so as we seek to remember that God is at work and to ask about the things that happen for an untold reason that leave us with a, a longing for closure, for meaning, for some understanding... We turn to Scripture together to do so. Before we turn to God's Word to read, let's pray. Lord, in your Scriptures you tell us that your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, bring your light to the dark places. Lord, and in the corners of our hearts that need a little bit of light, We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you may bring light to us this day, that we are not left to curse the darkness, but that rather we have been equipped to share and to know the light of your Son, Jesus Christ. So as we read, send your Holy Spirit upon us, that our hearts and our minds may be attuned to you, to know your truth, to know your love, to experience your comfort and to be equipped for your calling. Lord, in your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, do just that. Amen. Genesis chapter 50, beginning at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us, and pays us back for all of the wrongs that we did to him. So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. 
His brothers then came and and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And turning now to Romans chapter 8, just to recap. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you might know this song if you listen to the radio. Just give me a reason, just a little bit's enough, just to show that we're not broken, just bent, and we can learn to love again. How many of you know that song, out of curiosity's sake? All right. How many of you know who that's by? Yeah. Who's it by? Pink. Yeah. Um, One of of our... uh, current infamous pop stars. And I know that song is a few years old because I'm not always right on the cutting edge of music. But I do know that song because it was very popular when I was on maintenance in seminary. And so I heard it a lot. And the lyrics are rather, well, we're going to get to the lyrics. The tune is very catchy. And the lyrics do have some captured essence of the longing of our hearts. Just give me a reason. Just a little bit is enough. Just to know that we're not broken, just bent. And we can learn to love again. Yeah, I'm only going to sing it once. (laughs) I actually specialize in lyric analysis, and one of the promises I made to my coworkers on Maintenance Crew is I will ruin any pop song of their choosing through an in-depth lyrical analysis. And don't even get me started on One Direction. However, that song and its popularity has a twofold lesson in it. One is that we have this longing for a reason. When we can't make sense of the world, when an event happens that, that just does not seem right, and there's no good explanation, there's no good reason why this tragedy had to happen. Or maybe there is a very explainable cause and effect of one person's reckless, careless, or evil intentions has caused great harm on another group. This can be local or global, individual or national. When that happens, we long for a reason. Just a little bit would be enough. We long for some reason to know, God, what, what are you doing? What are you up to in this? And I think... That, that is that same part of our hearts that made Just Give Me a Reason so popular 
is also why the phrase, everything happens for a reason, became so popular. Because we usually don't know what the reason is, but we want to hold on to the idea that there is a reason. That there is a reason for the Amaya family. That there's a reason for the car accident. That there's a reason for the homicide. There's a reason for the miscarriage. We want there to be a reason. And as we covered last week, sometimes we might not even see if there is a reason that's made clear to us, it might not even happen in our lifetime. But we do want a reason. Also, that song, Just Give Me a Reason, is incredibly misguided. And here's why. The scope of the album is one of you, through context clues, subtle and not so subtle, pick up on the, the album as a whole tells a story of a woman who's actually in a toxic relationship and by all means should be getting out of that relationship and yet keeps finding a reason to be in it. Just give me a reason. Just a little bit's enough. Now, the whole album tells the story of her eventually saying, you know what, I'm going to break out of this. I'm going to break free of this. I'm going to put it behind me in my past. Unfortunately, the song that became most popular was the one that at the revelation of uh, seemingly some, someone was being cheated on, there's a longing actually to still just have a reason to stay. That song, the one about her staying in a relationship that she should get out of, is the one that became most popular and actually kind of skews the whole context of the album. There's a lesson in that for us, too. That as we read Scripture, back to week one of this series, we read every piece of Scripture in relation to the greater whole. And some of you know the phrase, every text without a pretext is a context for trouble. When we take one piece without the rest of the whole of Scripture, we might do some theological damage or make some meaning that was not meant to be made. And this is why we need to read Scripture and Scripture interprets Scripture, but the ways in which that is done better and less better is where our doctrine comes into play, how we understand the story of Scripture unfolding, how we understand who God is revealing God's self to be most fully through Jesus Christ. We long for reason, and sometimes if we want a reason bad enough, we'll take things out of context just to make it fit. We might take one piece that's part of a bigger whole and just hold on to this one single thing if it makes it a little bit easier. Just give me a reason or everything happens for a reason. And to recap, Romans chapter 8 does speak much of God's foreknowledge and of God's predestining, and predestination is a word in the Bible. Don't forget that, no matter who you're reading. The Reformed folk did not just make up the word predestination. But predestination has to do with our souls, has to do with our salvation. This reminder that, that you are saved by God's grace and that your salvation has way more to do with God than it does for you, that you have been predestined and called from before the beginning of time, and that the conforming that happens here is that we are made more and more like Jesus.
and that Romans 8, a, a chapter about suffering, speaks of God working for the good of those who love him with the understanding that God will work some good even out of the worst of the bad. But friends, to remember that in that, that we need to be careful to ascribe meaning to God because God does not act with or in accordance to evil. Romans 8 reminds us that God foreknew us. But God's knowing something, God's foreknowing of something, is different from God's causing of something. Knowing and causing are different. In the ways in which we might observe the behavior of toddlers, that you might know exactly what's going to happen next. I like to tell my daughter, I can see your thoughts. And she probably is going to bring that up with a therapist someday. (laughs) I can see your thoughts. I know what's going to happen next. I'm not causing it. I'm waiting to change the situation a little bit. But I'm not causing it. How much more does God, sovereign, almighty, all-powerful God, know all of what's happening here? Not causing or inflicting pain in a cruel way upon us, but knowing. And in discussion, um, in worship planning, um, Aaron Koster brought to us just this helpful reminder that God's sovereignty and our human agency, our will to act, our decision-making process... That's not a, it's not a pie chart. Like, God gets 50% agency and we get 50% agency. It's not a pie chart of negotiating what percentage is us or God. But that these are a paradox that coexist. That God is sovereign and we have a will to act. We have choices that we make. And from a few weeks ago, we can't be so quick to say, well, the devil made me do it because the devil might not have had to try that hard, and also that we don't be so um, strong in denial that we want to put things on God, that we're not God's. God's sovereignty and our human agency coexist, not in a pie chart competing for percentage, but simultaneously, and that humans may act with evil intentions, that God did not spur us on to to break God's laws or to cause harm or to be malicious or divisive. But rather, what we see throughout the whole of Scripture, even in the dark parts, is that God continues to hold fast because God is steadfast. God continues to redeem. And maybe God did not inflict the pain, but God can redeem it and make something of it. And as we maybe sometimes work towards evil ends, God works tirelessly for good. And that's where we come into Genesis chapter 50, a phrase that is, in fact, one of my favorites in all of Genesis. My, my two favorite verses from Genesis is one, when Jacob and Esau meet each other, And the scope of forgiveness is Jacob says to Esau, to see your face is to see the face of God. To experience this level of grace and forgiveness is to see the face of God. And here in Genesis chapter 50, where where Joseph says, you intended or acted to harm me, 
But God intended it, meaning your actions, God used your actions for good to accomplish what is now being done. Meaning that God is tirelessly working in all of the things that God foreknows with the simple reminder that God knows more and knows better than us. That God can do good even in the midst of brothers who cheat against each other, who lie to each other. Even what we read of what Joseph's brothers in fear say, Joseph might come after us. We better tell him that our father said this so that he'll protect us. Joseph was there at the deathbed of Jacob. The lies continue in this family just as the favoritism does. Abraham favored Isaac over Ishmael. When Isaac and Rebekah got married, Rebekah favored Jacob over Esau. And then Jacob favored Joseph over all of his other sons. Favoritism is the toxic family trait in the early chapters of Genesis. And that favoritism leads the brothers to be against each other. Until finally they sell Joseph into slavery and he goes through some ups and downs until finally he ends up being second only to Pharaoh. And because Joseph was in Egypt, God used him to interpret Pharaoh's dreams that in the seven years of plenty, when the floodplains of the Nile were absolutely overflowing a bumper crop, they started putting food away so that when the famine came, they were ready for it, and Egypt prospered because of it. God did a lot of good with the evil actions of some brothers who sold their brother into slavery. But... Friends, let's hold on to this. That's God's redeeming power at work. But God could do good without the human evil. God didn't need the evil thing to be what precipitated God's good. God could have worked out God's good through good in the first place. So the brothers being angered against Joseph, God used that. But I don't believe that God is so limited that that's the only thing that God had to work with. God redeemed. But God can do good without human evil. When they were in fear, when Joseph's brothers were scheming evil thoughts, they were up to no good. And God was up to only good, to a greater and greatest good that many lives would be saved. It's back to the pie chart. This could have gone differently. God used all of the events that happened in God's perfect foreknowledge and ordaining. That God gave Joseph, the one who is there, the ability to interpret dreams. This all goes back to God's covenant promises to Abraham generations ago that he would preserve them as a people. God was up to good. Not a pie chart of who had what amount of agency in the scenario but that each person's actions they're accountable for and that ultimately God was using all of the actions as they happened. Friends, I do find some comfort in knowing that even in our mistakes, God is at work, but that doesn't mean that we're blessed to make more mistakes. That even when we get frustrated and act out of character, God might redeem and be using this and be at work. But that's not a call to abandon principles of character and virtue but to pursue them. 
everything happens for a reason, could have been what Joseph and his brothers said when they found themselves with plenty to eat in Egypt. And Joseph could easily come back and say, everything happens for a reason? Yes, the reason I was sold into slavery and thrown in a pit is because you were jealous of me. We still have an accountability to our actions. Everything does happen for a reason if sometimes we admit that the reason was cause and effect. The reason was jealousy going into action. Sometimes our reason is carelessness. But in all of this, in knowing that there's cause and effect, being careful not to ascribe God evil action. Rather to say, just give me a reason. And sometimes that is an honest prayer. Just give me one reason. Just show me that there's some point and purpose in the middle of all of this. Through chronic suffering, just show me some glimpse of how you're at work, God. We long for that reason. And also, God's plan for the world is bigger than just one individual one of us. We are egocentric by nature. We, we think of and understand ourselves quite well. But, but God is bigger than just one of us. And the example that came up in discussion with a friend for me this week was a way in which that I believe that, that God was at work in my life before I had any idea of it. Friends, I went to a lot of funerals growing up. A lot. Every other year, I lost a grandparent or an uncle throughout most of my childhood. I lost a lot of relatives and went to a lot of funerals as a kid. And it conditioned me to understand funerals, to critique them, and I was just used to them. I went to a lot. Now, here at North Holland, no big secret, I have officiated a lot of funerals. I do not believe that God caused all of my relatives to die of cancer and heart attacks and strokes so that just me, Stephen DeVries, could be prepared to officiate a whole lot of funerals at North Holland Reformed Church. I do believe God used those experiences. I do believe there is a reason that I could be shaped and formed to not be very squeamish about death. In fact, sometimes to be uh, a little bit too calloused about it. And that's where love will break down those calloused sides. But that's bigger than just me. Think of the ways in which you've been shaped or formed, that it was never about just one person, but God using our experiences in a bigger and broader way. If there's one thing that I feel confident about saying is I can officiate funerals decently. Sometimes just through practice. But I was prepared for it. It's not the reason. It doesn't mean that I don't wish that I could have known my grandparents a little bit better. But I can see that what was harmful and painful could be used and that God could intend, God could put into action something good from it. Just give me a reason. That longing to make meaning, to make sense of the times where there's no good answers will always exist, will always be present, and we will always have that longing. 
And we want to have some control, and the best way we can have control is to make sense of things. But rather than trying to decrypt the puzzles of life's mysteries or pretend that we somehow know the mind of God exclusively, what if our call was rather to be mindful of our own actions? That we, even if we believe that we can see so clearly how something unfolded, we have a very limited picture of understanding the whole world. That's why we have days like World Communion Sunday to remember it's a lot bigger than just us. We can say everything happens for a reason, but last week we covered some of the territory of where that's just not a helpful phrase to offer. But we can take upon ourselves as individuals and as a church to say, everything I do will be for a reason. My actions will be guided by principles. We all have guiding principles, but to pay attention to them, to know this is why I do what I do, that I take responsibility for it, to be the, the best faithful version that I can, and to trust that God will equip me for what I need. Friends, if we try to decrypt all the mysteries of life, we can blame the devil, maybe where it was us, and we can put God in a box of our own cause and effect. We can't explain away pain, but we as a church can be present to one another in it. We can't look back and say that that God inflicted hatred among Joseph and his brothers. God could have preserved Egypt and the famine in other ways. But God will be at work, and God will not be foiled, and God will sometimes outsmart even our wicked intentions. Our call is to then pay attention like Joseph did, not to get into a blame game, but to say what you or what the world intended for harm, God intended or quite literally put into action for good, to accomplish what is now being done. What's the best good you can do? Everything can happen for a reason in your own life. The greatest control you have is not over the world or over others, but over ourselves. So as a church, let's pay attention well to help point out the good. And for those who have experienced an unexplainable pain to keep our hearts and eyes open for those who go through the very same kinds of things as we read in 1 Peter 5. And in those moments to say, let me be with you. Not, I know exactly how you feel. Not, I've gone through the same thing. But let me be with you. And this is our prayer too. God, may you be with us that everything that we do may happen for a reason.